And our text for this afternoon is Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 8 so we get the context. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Pray with me, friends. Lord, we bow. We ask you now. We've been able to sing true things of gospel and praise of your glory and your holiness. But now, God, would you open our hearts to your word and absolutely richly bless our souls. Our only hope is you, Father, through the grace given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Let us learn and grow and change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. I want to remind you of an old saying from the business world. You don't see me do that to you guys very often, right? But it's got significance, application for Christian thinking. Here's the quote. I've given it to you at least once before I can remember. Ready? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You ever hear that before? That's pretty good, isn't it? And, and clever and catchy and all that. It's simple, but it's profoundly helpful. See, Christians, it's easy for you and me to find ourselves distracted because we get busy talking and studying and thinking through issues that maybe they're good issues, maybe they're important issues. But if we're not very intentionally careful, we can lose our focus on the main thing. You can see that, can't you? Paul wrote to Titus, and in this letter, he had some very important things he wanted Titus to focus on. There was a greeting in chapter 1, 1 through 4, that was rich in the truth of the gospel. Then Paul told Titus in chapter 1, 5 through 9, to appoint elders in the churches of Crete, because, verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, there were dangerous false teachers doing harm to the people in the local church. Chapter 2 1 to 10, Paul tells us how we're supposed to live in our households. And then 2 from 11 to 15, Paul took our focus back to the gospel. It's as if Paul was telling us, yeah, I've told you how to live as Christians in the church and in the home, but don't forget the gospel I started with. I don't want you to lose track of the gospel. 
And last week, as we began our look at Titus chapter 3, we saw a call in verses 1 and 2 to seven attributes of godly living in the world as Christians. We looked at them with two categories. You are to live in right relationship to authorities in your society. Christians are not supposed to be the people on the island of Crete trying to overflow the government, overthrow the government. I think I said overflow, and that would have been weird. We're not, we're not supposed to be seen as people who foment rebellion in society. And Christians are to show all kinds of courtesy in our dealings with outsiders. Even as we talk about the people who oppose us, Christians are to have a decorum. We are to have a dignity. We are to have a classiness in how we respond to a non-believing culture around us. Now today, as we move forward, guess what we're going back to? We're being reminded by God that while we want to live rightly, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And once again today, the Lord will put before us the gospel and its glorious impact on our lives once again, we're going to see that our obedience to the commands of God and obedience that is a very good thing is the right result of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. We obey because we're saved. We don't obey in order to be saved. So come along with me. We're going to see a glorious reminder of the gospel. It'll help us to obey the commands of verses 1 and 2 even as it puts our focus clearly back on the main thing, which is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. We're going to find five quick points in verses 3 through 8. So y'all ready? Do you guys believe we can find five points quickly? <laughs> Point number one, remember who you were. Remember who you were. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How's that for a pedigree? The word for at the beginning of verse 3, that's one of those connector words that we talked about in our last growth class, right, on how to interpret the Bible. For tells you, you're picking up an argument here. You're not just beginning a new section. And the last thing Paul called Titus to teach the people is probably what he's got most in mind. Faithful Christians are to treat other people, even lost people, even those who are attacking the church with courtesy. We are to carry ourselves with decorum. We are not to participate in low speech, in nasty, dishonest talk, we are not to speak evil of others. We are not to love quarreling, which should kick most people off the internet. And now, now, we're going to get a reason why we want to guard our words and to be careful of our attitudes and even, yes, of our tone. We want to treat other people with courtesy and kindness as we remember that we were once lost too. How many of you are saved right here? How many of you were lost? 
You can't be one without the other, by the way. As you reflect on how lost you once were, you should be able to have a kinder attitude toward those who are still dead in their sins. Last week we saw seven attributes to put on. This week we're going to be reminded of seven evil attributes that we used to wear. So if you're a Christian here today, this should remind you of who you were when you were in your sin before God, whether you realized it or not. And if you've not yet come to Jesus and you're hearing this message, I want you to understand that this verse is actually describing where you presently stand before God and you need help. When Paul wrote the letter he wrote uh, to the church of Ephesus, the letter we have as Ephesians in our Bibles, Paul told the Ephesians that before they were saved, they were dead in their sins and trespasses. Very similarly, here Paul calls on Titus to remind the church that we used to be dead in our sins. We were rebels against God. We deserved the judgment and the wrath of the Almighty. Look at the list. First are several flaws of understanding and flaws of obedience, right? We were once foolish. That means we were unwilling and unable to learn the things of God. We were disobedient. We rebelled against God's authority and will, and we rebelled against human authorities too. We were led astray. We were deluded. We wandered away from the truth. We were easily dragged off into foolish thinking. And we were foolish enough to think that evil things were good sometimes. And sometimes we thought that good things were evil. And our lack of understanding left us unable to battle against our flesh. Right? Paul says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We all know our minds and our bodies have drives and desires of all different shapes and sizes. Part of being a faithful human being, and listen to me carefully here, part of being a Christian is when you Strive by the grace of God to keep your desires in check. See, we're not to live like animals. We are not supposed to be mastered by our instincts. But when we were without Christ, our bodies ruled over us. We were enslaved to passions. And by the way, that could mean, of course, sexual desire and sexual sin and immorality in the, among us when we were lost but the fact is it could mean other enslavements, right? There are, there are other substances and other drives that get us. A, 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 an unquenchable need for entertainment. A, an unchecked urge to have power and prestige. Those are all things that could drive you. And as we live with those blinded minds and we were enslaved to our drives it says we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See, the more that our sin dominated our lives, the more possible it became for us to genuinely, well, it, be, it became impossible for us to genuinely love people as God would command. Christless hearts have malice, have ill will toward others. A Christless heart will envy It'll want what other people have. It'll begrudge others their successes. 
And eventually you become a people hated, hating yourself, hated by others, hating one another. Again, if you look around the world, how easy is it to see all of that stuff? Blinded minds, unchecked passions, revelry in sexual immorality or drunkenness or foolishness or godlessness and embracing the evil and hating the good until you become malicious and mean-spirited and mean-speaking and hating others and hating everybody that doesn't agree with you in every little thing. Does that not look like the world we live in right now? That Christian is who we were. Don't sit there and say, I wasn't like that. That was your heart, whether you realize it or not. And even if you were a child when you came to faith, I promise you that was in your heart even then and would have become your life had the Lord not saved you. The Bible's picture of who we were before Christ is a very dark picture. We were blinded in our minds. We were unable to obey God. We were enslaved to our desires. We were unable to keep our sinful urges in check. We were turned away from love. We were turned toward evil in relation to others. And even when we did other people good, because some lost people do nice things, we never could love people in a way that would honor and please the Lord. The Bible teaches a doctrine which we summarize in systematic theology as the doctrine of depravity. You guys know that word? You bunch of reformed people, you. The doctrine of our depravity, or especially total depravity, the doctrine of depravity before salvation, teaches us that before Jesus, we were sinful. And that sin had so much of a hold on our lives that we were never going to be willing or able to turn from that sin to embrace the things of God. That's not saying that God put something on you that you didn't desire, but it says that your desires were shaped in such a way that you didn't want God and you would never turn to him by your own choice. Depravity never teaches that you've ever been as sinful as you could be. Total depravity doesn't mean you are totally, utterly, ultimately depraved. Because y'all can always get worse. Depravity teaches that we were so sinful in ourselves that had God left us to ourselves, we never would repent and we would never come to God for mercy. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, when Paul wrote that we used to be dead in our sins, depravity is what he meant. We followed the lead of sin, the world, the flesh, the devil. We were unable to respond to God. Our evil desires, they were desires that were truly our own. They were not somebody else's fault. They were our fault because they were our desires from our hearts. Those desires prevented us from wanting God. Christians, remember who you were. And know that if you know Jesus, it's not because you were good. It's not because you were smart. It's not because you made a good choice. You were a rebel against God. 
You were a God-hater. You were dead in your sin. And you guys know, don't you, that dead people do not respond to invitations. Remember, and let that memory cause you to be kinder and more courteous to the lost. And remember, and let that memory cause you to give God thanks and praise for your salvation. And if you don't know Jesus yet, please hear me. You need God's grace. No matter how nice you think you are, you're a sinner before God who needs forgiveness and life change. We all do. God's word is absolutely clear. So own, own the fact that you need mercy or you'll be lost forever. Point number two. I have to remember who you are. Point number two, remember what Jesus did. Remember what Jesus did. Verse four, but. Don't you love when God paints a picture of us and how dark things were? And then he says, but. Oh, the subject change is glorious. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, we used to be dead in our sins unable to understand, unwilling to obey, enslaved to our drives, hating in our hearts, but something happened. Something changed our situation. Something made our lives different. The goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared. Back in chapter 2, we saw that the grace of God had appeared. And we said in that study that that's a, that's a weird little wording. Right? Grace is a concept. How could that concept appear? But it didn't take us long to realize that the point is that the grace of God appeared for us to see when Jesus Christ appeared. Here we see a very similar wording for a very similar concept. The goodness of God has appeared. The loving kindness of God toward mankind has appeared. And just like chapter 2, this is tied to the appearance, the coming, the epiphany, the advent of Jesus. Is this not a great spot as we approach Christmas to stop and remember the appearing of Jesus? Let me tell you about it real quick. God... The one true God, you guys know there's only one God, right? The one true God has always existed as Trinity. One God, three persons. And before the one God created the universe, God planned to display his glory by saving a people for himself. And all of the Old Testament of your Bible shows us that God created, that mankind rebelled, and that God promised the coming of a Savior. And all of the ways in the Old Testament where the people failed to keep the law of God and they failed to live up to God's standard, all those failures painted for you and me a picture of a human race utterly incapable of saving ourselves. We are helpless. We are hopeless. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, there are two facts that we are left with. Mankind is helpless, and God promised to send a Savior. 
And when the New Testament opens, we see an angel come into a couple of different people and he tells them that God's promised Savior is arriving soon. And then in a glorious miracle, God the Son took on human flesh, conceived in the womb of a virgin without any human intervention. The Son of God drew in, grew into a truly human baby. And in a glorious appearing, Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, was born. Throughout his life, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God. Jesus never sinned. Jesus always did exactly what God would do because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus communed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus perfectly fulfilled the obligation of humanity to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, then willingly gave up his life as a sacrifice. See, the plan of God had always been that Jesus would willingly die on a cross, and in doing so, would allow God the Father to punish him, Jesus, the innocent, for every single sin God would ever forgive. And Jesus, as the infinitely worthy God in human flesh, is fully able and was fully able to pay the full price for every sin God would ever forgive. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He came back to life, literally, physically. And now today, Jesus offers salvation to anyone who will come to him in faith and repentance. For any person who will acknowledge their sinfulness and helplessness, Jesus says, I will give you eternal life. Come to me. Jesus will apply to your account the record of his perfection. Jesus will take to himself the record of your sins, sins that he died to forgive. But it's only yours if you turn away from your sin and entrust your very soul to Jesus Christ for eternity. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you, come to Jesus today. Jesus will forgive you and he'll make you into a child of God. But if you refuse Jesus, you're declaring to God that you would rather pay for your own sins in hell. Please don't make that choice. Come to Jesus. Turn from sin. Believe and be saved. And if you're a Christian here today, remember what Jesus has done. Let it lead you to joy, to thanksgiving. Let it lead you to celebration, especially celebration in this season. Third point, rightly glorify God in salvation. Point number three is rightly glorify God in salvation. Verse five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For all who have come to Jesus, this sentence is true. 
He saved us. You've got to get that sentence right in all aspects, guys. He, God is the subject of this sentence. God, He, through Jesus, is the one doing the acting. God, what did He do? Saved us. What does it mean to save us? He rescued people destined for eternal death. If a person is plummeting to their death and someone catches them, they save them. If a swimmer is going under and going to die and someone brings them up, they save them. In this instance, we were already dead and God breathes life into us and brings us up. He saved us. He saved us. Every single person who comes to Jesus Christ for mercy and faith and repentance is saved. God did the saving. We received the salvation. God gets the glory. We get the grace. Don't get those mixed up. How do we know that our salvation is not to our credit? Paul says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's a pretty big negation, don't you think? No person is saved because he or she has done some sort of righteous work. No person is saved because of our obedience to the rules of God. No person is saved because he or she participated in any religious ceremony. All of us have sinned against God. None of us can be good enough to earn our way to heaven. None of us can boast that we contributed anything to salvation. Well, if it's not my righteousness, if it's not our righteousness that brought about our salvation, what is it that gets us into heaven? Paul says, but according to his own mercy. We're not saved by our doing good things or thinking good things. We're saved according to God's mercy. We're saved when God, by God's choice, withholds from us. He holds back from us the judgment we deserve. That's mercy. We're saved when God grants us a mercy and a goodness we could never earn. Then you see two things about our salvation. How do we get the mercy of God? We get the mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is regeneration? Well, to be regenerated is to be brought to life a second time, right? In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, No one can see God's kingdom unless he is born again. In order for any of us to be given the mercy of God, We must be given by God regeneration. God has to move us from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. Paul writes that same concept in Ephesians 2. I've alluded to it a couple times, but let me me read it to you. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. And you were dead... 
Wasn't that a terrible thing to hear? By the way, you know what the Greek word behind the word dead there means? It means dead. No tricks, no metaphors. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. We were dead in our sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. God saved us by his grace. And in Titus, Paul calls God's making us alive the washing of regeneration. That combines a couple of metaphors, right? Regeneration is God making alive that which was formerly dead. Washing is God making clean enough to stand in God's holy presence people who were never clean on their own. And once God regenerates us, giving us spiritual life. You know what happens? The moment you're regenerated, you believe in Jesus. You ask God for mercy because you never could have while you were dead. And you are truly washed, truly cleansed before God. And when you're made alive and when you're forgiven by God, you receive the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You're made brand new. What you formerly were died with Jesus Christ. And now who is alive is a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And part of that new is the Holy Spirit who lives in you and keeps making you new because every single believer in Jesus Christ has been forgiven and every single believer in Jesus Christ has been given by God the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in the lives of every person who's entrusted his or her soul to Jesus. And so, because we're regenerated, because we're renewed, because we have the Holy Spirit, all who know Jesus are now, for the first time, able not to sin. And for the first time, all of us who have Jesus are now able to do things that please God. Understand, before you were a Christian, you were not able not to sin. Does that sentence make sense to you, even with the double negative? Even, even when you did good things as a non-believer... None of those good things were done with the motive of honoring the God who made you. Thus, even the most righteous acts of a non-believer cannot be less than sinful. Isaiah 64, 6 says they are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And that is an ugly definition when you dig down into it. However, once you have Jesus, 
You can do things that please God. You can avoid sin. You are able to do right things with the motivation of honoring the God who made you and who saved your soul. So again, if you don't know Jesus, I urge you, come to Jesus that you might find yourself washed, regenerated, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Come to Jesus and be saved. And Christians, glorify God rightly for your salvation. God saved you. You did not save yourself. God regenerated you when you were dead in your sins. God washed you when you could never make yourself clean. God renewed you when you desperately needed to be made new. And God gave you his Holy Spirit that you might know him, understand his word, turn from your sin, and have the true hope of heaven. So give glory to the God who saved your soul. Give glory to Jesus. Fourth point. Grow in hope. Grow in hope. Verses 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus, or speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice as we look at these verses, that our salvation is the united, unified work of the three persons of the one true God, the Holy Trinity. God the Father poured out His Holy Spirit on us through Jesus, God the Son. What a glorious thing to know, Christian, that your salvation is triply secured. If you've turned from your sins and entrusted your soul to Jesus, you have the hands of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all to hold you and keep you. And God's not stingy with the people He saves. In verse 6, we see that He pours out His Spirit upon us richly. Back in verse 5, we saw that God saved us according to His own mercy, and that meant Yes, that God saved us in accord with mercy, but it also means that God, that the mercy God gives us befits the magnitude and the glory of the glory and the grace of God. We are saved. What he's saying there is we're saved by a God-sized mercy. By the way, that's how much mercy it took to save you. You know that, right? Only infinite mercy could save your soul. And we are richly blessed with a God-sized outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Christian, listen to me. You, if you're a Christian, have access to all of God. There's no secret second blessing. There's no secret extra breakthrough. As a Christian, you have access to God because you have the infinite, glorious Spirit of God living within you. What's all this about? We're justified by God's grace. To be justified means that God declares you to be just, to be righteous, to be okay before Him. Even though you are a sinner, God will call you just. Why? Because of Jesus' perfect work. God looks at you if you are a Christian and sees you as possessing the perfect righteousness of God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I just don't think there's a better single verse to tell you the gospel. When you're saved, God makes a trade. God trades your sin for Jesus' perfection. You guys like that trade, by the way? You willing to take that? If your life was a test paper, a test that you've failed, anybody ever fail a test before? If your life was a test paper and a test that you had failed, I want you to imagine God making an exchange. God writes your name down on the test that belongs to Jesus, which is the test Jesus aced. And God takes your failed test and he erases your name from it and he writes Jesus' name there and he punishes Jesus for your failure at the cross. As you failed, God punishes Jesus on the cross for what you've done while giving you a perfect score sheet. You get the gift of righteousness. Jesus, because of his glorious perfection, perfectly pays for your sin through his death. And then he rises from the grave and proves that the work is perfectly done. Again, why did God do all this? He did so in order that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice the focus there. We have become heirs. What's an heir? An heir is one who is in line to inherit. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. When you hear me use the phrase children of God, you, you hear me say those words a lot, by the way. When you hear me use those words, I want you to understand, I do not apply the label children of God to every single human being the same way. See, every person is a person of tremendous value because every person has been created in the image of God. That's true. The children of God, the heirs of God, though, are only those who have been adopted into God's family. You're an heir of God if you have, as John put it, received him, believed in the name of Jesus. If you have Jesus, you've been adopted and made a child of God. And you stand as one who has the unbreakable, unshakable hope of inheriting the riches of the kingdom of God. All who have Jesus have been promised eternal life, resurrection after death, and an eternity of total joy in the presence of the Lord. If you don't have Jesus, you are not a child of God. But I invite you to find hope. Turn from your sin and entrust your soul to Jesus and Jesus' finished work alone. All who come to Jesus are made into children of God, heirs according to promise. If you do know Jesus, live in hope. 
Live knowing that your eternity is secure. Live today turning away from sin, obeying God's commands, loving the Lord Jesus, because you know your forever is with Him. Fifth point, last one. Preach the true gospel. Preach the true gospel. Verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that the one, those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In Paul's, the last letters he wrote, we call them the pastoral epistles, his latter three letters, First and Second Timothy, Titus. Paul likes to reference certain things that he's written down as trustworthy sayings. It means that he said something both true and important. Paul wants Titus to pay close attention. He wants Titus not to neglect what he's just been taught. What's the trustworthy saying here? It's likely everything from chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, though it could be everything he's written. You're supposed to live well in the world. You're supposed to, by default, be obedient to your leaders and live a simple, quiet life as much as you can. You're to do good works. You're to treat people with courtesy. You're to remember who you were. You're to remember what Jesus has done. You're to give God the glory for your salvation. You're to live in hope. And as you remember it all, you are to keep the main thing, the main thing, by preaching the gospel. Titus is supposed to insist on this among the churches in Crete. Notice how it all comes together here. God says, remember the gospel. For Christians, when we focus on the gospel, it results in a change in our behavior. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus, you will live differently because you're saved. If you're not living differently, question whether salvation actually occurred. I'm not telling you to make you doubt, but if nothing in your life looks like a Christian, if you are willingly disobeying the commands of God, be concerned. Run to Jesus, repent, and be sure that you are saved. I'm not saying get saved again. You only get saved once, but make sure of it, right? We are to, by default, be obedient to our, our leaders. We're to live a simple, quiet life. We're supposed to do good works. We're supposed to treat people with courtesy. Remember who we were. Remember what Jesus has done. Give God the glory for our salvation. Live in hope. And as you remember every bit of it, you're supposed to keep the main thing, the main thing, because the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that means you keep the gospel front and center. You preach the gospel so you hear the gospel, so others hear the gospel, because the gospel is the center of everything that we are. Jesus is the center of everything we are. What you do needs to be about Jesus. Titus is supposed to insist on this in the churches. Sanctification is going to follow your belief. Obedience is the result of salvation. I just want to ask this. Have you believed in Jesus? If so, devote yourself to good works. 
because these things are excellent and profitable for people. Are you saved? Does it show? Live it out for your joy and the glory of the Lord. And one more time, if you don't know Jesus, you can't be good enough to get to heaven. I can't, you can't, nobody can. You can only fall on the mercy of Jesus. Turn away from your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Then your life will be changed. God will save you. God will grant you His Holy Spirit. God will help you do good works, which are good for you and for others as a result of being forgiven. Guys, as Christmas approaches, let's remember the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing here is the good news of the appearing of Jesus Christ. He came to save our very souls. Let's worship Jesus this sweet season.